0: That's right. Well, welcome to The View. I'm your host, Whoopi Goldberg. We're glad you're here today. (laughs) I love that. Um, No, welcome. We're glad you guys are here today. You can see I've got some friends joining me on stage. And this is wonderful because you get to hear voices other than mine. Just a real quick introduction. You may know everybody, but just to be sure, right here to my left, we have Elizabeth Pavey. uh, She's on staff here full-time at the church. Her job is officially keeping me in line and making sure I'm where I'm supposed to be and doing what I'm supposed to do. It's a
1: full-time job. It is a full-time
0: job. No, she's uh, officially, the title is Team Lead of Ministry Services because she does a little bit of everything. And she's doing a fantastic job. We're glad to have her here. Of course, we all know Pastor Amy. She's been, I told her, she's been with us eight years now here on staff at at the church. Can you believe that? Eight years? Nobody thought we'd make it this long. No.
2: But we did. No.
0: So here we are. go figure, <laughs> you know, if we can do eight, we can do 16, right? Oh, so, well, you know, yeah. maybe, <laughs> maybe. And uh, down on the end there is my friend, Steve Rogers. Uh, you guys have seen him. He's preached here with us before. And uh, he, uh, he and his family, wife, Sally, and mom there, Elsie on the front, uh, they joined us in what, 2018,
3: Steve? Is that right? Something like Something that. Something like that fall? Oh, of no, I'm not that long ago. Was it 19, 19. 19.
0: 19. Fall of 19. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but uh, Steve comes as a part of our family, and he he just recently retired from what'd you say, Hillcrest Country Club? Hillcrest Country Club, where he uh, loved his job mowing the grass. That was, he loved being out there. Uh, But before that, he spent 33 years as a pastor, missionary various places, Mexico for a season Mexico. and uh, all kinds of fun stuff, but uh, so I've asked these guys to join me today because you've heard me speak for five weeks now, and I figure you need, you need somebody else to talk about this topic of deconstruction, and so today we're just going to kind of wrap it up, and um, you know, we want to begin with just this idea of how did we get here, what, what led us to this moment, and if you remember way back week one, I told you this isn't anything new. Although it seems to be new, it seems to be kind of trendy right now, especially if you were a high-profile Christian to walk away from faith and kind of make a big splash as you walk away and just let everybody know. Um, but there are, there, you know, this is, this is something I think people of faith have been doing and should be doing as a part of our faith journey. Um, and so how did we get to this moment? I think we just, because what we see, these guys helped me put together what we preach and how we preach it. And in our discussions, we just realized that this is just the moment. This is the cultural moment. It seems to be very in vogue. It's being talked about. And if there's one thing we don't like to do at Ashworth is ignore what's happening around us. I think that's the most inauthentic thing you can do. And so one of the reasons we're talking about this is because it's important. And you may be going through this, you may know somebody who's going through it, whatever. And we just wanted to bring it into the open. To not act like it's not real or doesn't exist. Because as we think about faith as a whole, deconstruction and, you know, some people say, don't use that word. I like the word. Because I think that really does describe a little bit about what we should be doing. Because if we think, I said it week one, if you think about our faith, it's not like we got it all when Brent was seven or 12 or 13. That this is meant to be an ongoing, growing relationship with Jesus and a part of that means it's adding and subtracting. Anybody had to do some subtracting when it comes to your faith? Mm-hmm. Am I the only one? No, mm-hmm. we do. We, but we want to think of faith as just kind of build, 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 build. But it's not that way. It is taking some things out and you go, oh, I know better now. I learn more. I, you know, we put away the childish things and we begin to grow. And one author I, I like to read, you know, he talks about how spiritual growth requires subtraction and he talks in his in his book when everything's on fire he says spiritual progress is not knowing 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 it's more often knowing unknowing new knowing and i know that i can speak to that and say that's really been a part of my journey so really that's that's how we got here but really it's bigger than that too and uh, i think amy's going to speak a little bit to this but we talked a little bit in the early days about causes of deconstruction but if you don't know, Amy's full-time job, she's here 10 hours a week, but her full-time job is with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is college ministry here in Iowa on the campus. And so you see firsthand kind of deconstruction yes. <laughs> at ground zero, yes. right? Yeah, what, do you, what do you Absolutely,
2: see? I feel like lots of people are talking about Gen Z right now, and I'm watching it unfold in front of me among college students. And um, I've read lots of articles and heard lots of conversations about how... Um, Gen Z are walking away from the faith. Um, they're not going to church. They're not, you know, um, following what they were brought up with. And um, and I think so. Sometimes I think our assumptions are that Gen Z or this younger generation, they're just um, godless, you know. Especially Drake students, you know. The, Amen.
0: That godless bastion of Drake. <laughs> yeah, University. yeah.
2: People are always like, oh, Drake, it's so liberal, and they, there's no, like, you, wow, can, that's God's hard God's work not you do there. there. Yeah, and I'm like, actually. God is very much at work on campus, um, and he loves that place, and he loves our colleges and our universities, and he loves Gen Z, even if we don't. (laughs) Um, And so I think one of the things that I notice is that um, young students and young adults are not, um, they're not walking away from their faith because they're not interested in faith or spirituality or Jesus. They're walking away from faith because they've had experiences that they don't like, or they've had experiences that have felt disingenuine or painful or um, challenging for them that are like, I don't need that, you know, so I want to pursue something different. Um, But I still see a deep hunger for um, a a supernatural experience, a deep hunger for Jesus in particular and um, an interest in Jesus. I think many of the students I interact with um, have had, uh, they just have a high value for Um, talking about hard things, and they're like, the church isn't talking about this, you know? The Me Too movement happened, and we started to hear about so many women that had experienced sexual abuse or trauma from men in power, and that was happening in churches, too, and now we're seeing that more and more, and many of our churches just didn't talk about it. Um, Not only
0: didn't talk about it, though, but it was unwelcome. Yeah. You know, it it wasn't that they were just, yeah, don't talk. I mean, it was even discouraged.
2: Yes, yes, and then... um, uh, and some of the stuff around race and racism being like, why is our church not talking about this? If God is, if God's image is in all people, then we should be standing with our brown and black brothers and sisters and um, all kinds of things happening um, in our world. And even in the pandemic, um, there's a lot of just um, angst and people saying, um, uh, I'm surprised the way Christians are handling this, that kind of thing. Or I have had students who's maybe they didn't experience the kind of pain from the church, but their parents did. They watched their parents go through a messy divorce and the church kind of, you know, pushed them out um, or something happened in their family and they couldn't talk about it. I had a student share just just last week, I had a bunch of students sitting around my backyard for their final um, gathering of the year. And one of one of those students was a senior and she was reflecting on with the group about her experience of faith in college and at university, And she talked about how um, she grew up Lutheran. She was like, I was getting confirmed in seventh grade. She's like, I'd gone through all the, you know, religious ed and all the classes, and I'd learned all these things. And she said, and then it was my turn to go in front of my youth pastor and like defend my faith or share my testimony as a seventh grader. And she's a very genuine person. And she goes before her youth pastor, and she said, I just froze and I just started bawling. And I said, I don't understand any of it. This is all really confusing. And I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. And I don't know if I'm actually a Christian and like, I'm so sorry, you know? And her youth pastor looked at her and he was like, so do you want to be confirmed or not? Like, do you, or do you want to be confirmed? Should we move your confirmation to next year? And, and then she's like, you know, the fear in me is like, well, I want to be a good kid. So like, I should get confirmed. I don't want to make my parents mad or you mad. So she got confirmed and she said, there was never any conversation after that. And so she said that seventh grade, um, me came into college. I still have all those same doubts. I still have all those same questions and wrestling. And she said, but then I did find a community of faith in college where I could bring seventh grade me to the table and bring my doubts and questions as crazy as they were, you know, and um, and had a place to wrestle. And as she did that, you know what she realized? That she loves Jesus and that she um, uh, wants to follow him and doubts and questions and all of that but she wanted a place where she could be herself, where she could, her questions would be welcome, and where people would talk about hard things. And she did not experience that in her church growing up. And so you can understand then, why, why do people walk away? It's not because their desire changes. Um, it's because the circumstances have been challenging.
1: And I think that's our been our desire over the past few weeks to provide that safe space where people can ask those kinds of questions. And I hope that's Ashworth all of the time. But just imagine if that young woman didn't have a space like that. She'd probably just keep going on in daily life, push all of those questions about faith and religion aside, I'm so thankful that that InterVarsity had that space for her, and hopefully we as a church can be that, too.
0: Yeah, because churches often can be seen as, you know, places where you just show up and leave, do your religious duty, and you put on the mask and everything's okay. But we we on our website we say this we talk about it one of our values here at ashworth is authenticity and it's not just a byline it's actually something i'm very passionate about because if all we're going to do is come here and play church i'm not interested i can go find a different nine to five job that'll pay the bills i want something real and that's why part of being real and, and in faith is to allow the questions to encourage the questions There's nothing that we've talked about that has knocked God off his throne, just so you know. Mm -hmm. He hasn't been wringing his hands in eternity and in heaven going, Ooh, what's that Brent going to say this week? Mm -hmm. He's okay, you know, and he can deal with this. And so I think it is important for us to be a place that allows that to take place. And so as part of the series, we, we encourage people to ask questions, and we got a few questions in, some really good questions, and we're going to try to get to all of them. We had to skip one earlier but, uh, because we ran long, but we'll try to get to them all this time. Um, we're going to start with this one, though. Um, this one came in, it says, in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, it says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Can you explain that as it applies to deconstruction? I'm done. <laughs> oh, I, I, originally, the person yeah. who sent this email, they said, "Can you explain this?" And I just replied back and said, "No." <laughs> question answered. No. Wow.
2: So pastoral. I know. So pastoral. That's kind. Well, they asked the what question. Why don't you answer the question, <laughs> Steve? Well,
3: I think this is really gets to the crux of the issue: mm-hmm. is you know what's authentic from God and what is man-made that we have built up over the millennia. Uh, under the label of Christianity that really is not a necessary or essential part of the life and presence of Jesus in us. And uh, we can go down a whole list of things in our contemporary world that would define that. I, I was just thinking, and I, I'm going to step out here into controversy, but the headlines this week that uh, the Archbishop in San Francisco, denied communion to one of our prominent politicians because of her position on abortion. Now, you can have your opinion on that. I'm not here to tell you what your opinion should be. But there's no biblical basis, in my opinion, for that step to be taken. That, that was a man-made thing an arbitrary thing. Uh, Yes, the scripture says don't take the communion unworthily, but if you read in the context, it's talking about having the wrong attitude coming to the table, bullying your way to the front, pushing people aside, being selfish. Paul says don't take communion that way. That's the unworthy manner. He wasn't saying you have to be without sin or you can't come to the table. A tradition of man has twisted that to make it just exactly that. Those kinds of things are what get in people's way in their faith walk. Mm -hmm. And uh, we we as individuals and as a church must constantly be looking for things that we've built up, maybe unintentionally, maybe just out of habit and routine, that become hard and fast traditions and practices that become obstacles and stumbling blocks Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to genuine faith. Mm
1: -hmm. And then if those traditions become the only part of our faith, the thing that matters the most over Jesus, over anything else, then when you have different controversies, when you come up with questions, I think it crumbles because Jesus is our cornerstone. We sing about that a lot. but um traditions can kind of get in the way if we make that a a priority
0: yeah and the the question i wrote after our discussion earlier this week was i thought i said so when do we allow god to veto our traditions when do we allow god because sometimes we hold on to our traditions as if they are the inerrant inspired you know dictate from on high when really we're just talking about preferences. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought about, um, most of you remember this, the nice worship wars of the 90s. Do you mm-hmm. guys remember that? Where, you know, young ones like me, just out of college in the 90s, came into churches and we thought, we got some newfangled music we wanna help teach you guys. <laughs> and we came up against a brick wall uh-huh. in a lot of situations where we were so, no, don't you bring that music in this place. And, um, and so when you think about that, who was right and who was wrong and was one thing more godly or or you know more ordained than the other and the answer is no because when you break down that entire argument that lasted way too long what do you get to well what is the point what were we trying to accomplish well I think we'd say worship worship was the goal Well, now if we dig into worship a little bit, what do we find that worship is? Well, we would find that music is a part of, and a small part of worship. It's not all encompassing of what worship is, it's just a piece of it. And then when you go into thinking, well, what type of worship is necessary? Well, that even becomes less significant in the process. Mm -hmm. It's no more significant than what radio station do you choose to listen to when you're driving around. And so I think what we have to do is we have to decide, what are our traditions based on? You were mm-hmm. saying this, Liz. It's like, what, what is that? Is it my preferences or are we really looking and going, what, what really matters? Mm-hmm. What is that foundation, as mm-hmm. you said? And it needs to be Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think many of the things that we fight over could be in fun, robust debates, and still leave us walking away as friends, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. yet we somehow mm-hmm, take those traditions mm-hmm. and claim them as, you know, sovereign kind of kind of places. It so. makes
2: me think of when Jesus is talking to the disciples and he tells them the parable of the wine skins and the new wine, where he's yeah. like, "Okay, the wine. There's this new wine. Like Jesus is the wine, right? But over time, we have held to this wine skin. Like we want the." the thing that we hold Jesus in to remain the same, even when Jesus is saying to them, actually we need, if we have new wine, you know, God is doing a new thing. Sometimes we need new wineskins, we need some stretch. You know, those old wineskins get hard and they break and they get brittle. And I think um, Matthew and I took this class a number of years ago um, called Perspectives. And it was about kind of the history of world missions and um, the movement of God around the world. And um, so as we were learning about that, there was a man speaking who, um, had done ministry in a, another part of the world, and he talked about this idea, and he said, um, it's as if, um, he said one of the locals was, was explaining that, you know, you've brought us the bread of life, and we are so grateful, you know, you've taught us about Jesus, you brought us the bread of life, but it's packaged in this wonder bread bag from America, and we're choking on it, like we can't, you know, that does not work for us, and this idea of, you um, Um, One of the ways that we've created barriers um, and we have held to tradition versus just Jesus is that we have even, you know, we've colonized our faith even, right? And um, in all kinds of places in the world and in our churches locally, it's like there's a formula and this is what it looks like. And so we have this beautiful thing like in Jesus, in the new wine, but... um, we're presenting it in a way that it fits our context or our box or our our tradition, and it doesn't work for other people always.
0: And a lot of what feeds into this is what we talked about last week, and it's our view of the Bible. Yeah. And I probably said some things that maybe were interesting and maybe you disagreed with, and that's okay. Uh, but after the message, I, I got an email, and this individual said, I was thinking about uh, in my the illustration I used last week about the man who was bothered by the quote-unquote discrepancy in Mark 1-2. says, It bothered me too, so I looked it up. Mark 1-2 seems to be a combination of Malachi 3-1 and Isaiah 43. So what is written by Mark is not necessarily flawed or incorrect, but Mark was actually quoting from Isaiah as well. I understand this was used to deliver a bigger message, but I think it conveyed the possibility of a flawed Bible which could be dangerous. And so was I saying that we have a flawed Bible? And I would say... Only in so much if you think that everything has to be literally true, then I think we have a problem. Because from a human perspective, I look at what Mark wrote, and I understand it. I type emails all the time where my brain gets out, or my, you know, my brain gets out in front of my fingers, and I leave out words, and I whatever. And I'm okay with that, and I can understand that. But if I have a hermeneutic that says, well, it has to be this way, and I think this is one of those traditions of men that we can talk about, then I think we have a problem because to be perfectly true, what Mark should have written was in the prophets of Malachi and Isaiah, it says this, and it doesn't say that, Mm -hmm. which leads us to some problems, doesn't it?
3: Well, it does because um, there are many examples like that in the scriptures. If you start really zeroing down on it, drilling down on it, There are any number of places where facts aren't the same from one gospel to the next. Uh, Sizes of crowds vary. Timing of events varies in the different gospels. Um, And if you try to force all of those to have to be exact and perfect, uh, then you're asking the Bible to do something it wasn't intended to do. Now, I insist that the Bible is not in error in anything it tells us about God Amen. and his dealings with us. But in the minutiae of each individual author writing out their particular perspective on the matter, we don't have to insist that they all agree any more than we would go into a library and go into the science section and require every science book on the shelf to say exactly the same thing. We wouldn't expect that. The Bible is not a constitution. It's a library. It has many authors over several thousands of years. And they wrote from their context and their perspective and their uh, experiences. And and God breathed on them as they did it. But God wasn't about getting all the minutia correct. He was about getting out The message of life
1: and i think we miss the point if we focus so much on those details too all the discrepancies i can see how that could lead one to deconstruct but the bible is beautiful it's just this living um book that we get to to understand god to know who jesus is And so if we're focusing on all of those details, we're missing the point. We're missing that Jesus is the point. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, I am the word of life. I'm the word of God. Mm -hmm. And that's what our focus should be.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I use this example and it will surely get me in trouble, but it's Genesis 1 and 2. You know, when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we can have a couple of different perspectives in how we approach that. You know, there's a perspective that says it's literal and historic in nature, and God is writing out for us exactly how creation took place. And that means that this earth is a certain age. Or you can look at it and you can say, oh, there's more poetry there. There's more, you know, the, the, the point is not scientific. It's more uh, helping us to understand who God is and why he did it. And I can go, okay, and I can go there. The problem is, is when we must have it be one certain way. And that problem stems from, as Steve said, asking the Bible to do something the Bible was not intended to do. We bring our 21st century mentality, our 21st century understanding of textual criticism, our 21st, you do understand that the way we do science, they didn't do it back then. And that's okay, because that wasn't the point anyway. But when we take our 21st century mentality and try to force it on here, what will happen is it will all fall apart. Yeah. It will all crumble down around you because it's just not meant to do it. Read Genesis 1. Look at it. Understand that at that time when that was written, there were multitudes of creation narratives that, sim- that are very similar to the way Genesis 1 and 2 were written. Yeah. Look at the poetry. Look at the repetition. Look at, and God created this and it was good, and God created this, and it was good, and God created this, and it was good. That sounds more like poetry to me than anything else, but I don't have to look at that and go, but it doesn't, it doesn't. It's okay, it's okay. What is the point of that story? It's to reveal we have a creator, a creator that is actively engaged with us, who loves us, and who we are made in his image. You wanna talk about whether the earth is 5,000 years old or 18 billion years old, fine. But let's have that conversation after we, as a community of faith, start to see and acknowledge the image of God in all his creation, you know? And stop, Christians can get so derailed on the minutia that we miss the bigger point. And I think it, it fails to acknowledge something bigger about God, which is this. That God moves sometimes, that what God did then he may do differently now. And, no, and I used this as an example weeks ago, but Acts 10 is a perfect example of this. God had, I mean, there was laws and rules and regulations about who you could and couldn't engage with. And Gentiles were dogs. We were dogs and we were not included. We were the outsiders. In fact, Jews couldn't engage with us or speak to us and certainly couldn't enter our houses because it would defile them to come. And Peter has this incredible revelation of God in Acts chapter 10, where God says, I'm doing a new thing. And so don't hold to that tradition any longer. I'm vetoing that tradition. We're going to do something new. We're going to do something different. And I want you to do it. Imagine the difficulty for Peter in that moment. Imagine the soul struggle going on within him for 30, whatever years of his life, however old he was in this moment to have been trained in this way. And now for God to say, yeah, we're doing something different. I'd have fought it. I haven't deconstructed necessarily very easily all through the time, I've fought some of that way. Mm-hmm. But we really, again, this doesn't diminish the Bible. If anything, it enhances the Bible, it, in, it, in, it increases its authority and its beauty and how we engage with it. And I hope we can see and understand that. So is the Bible flawed? Not, not the way I see it, mm-hmm. but um, I think if we handle it incorrectly, it certainly could be. Um, there was another question about the Bible that came in last week that said, how do you address uh, the apparent contradictions as a follower of Jesus? And what about practices that we engage in now that the Bible explicitly states against, such as divorce or women in church leadership? (laughs) Don't look at me. (laughs) I've been talking. (laughs)
2: Um, I I think the place I would start with this question is, uh, again, it goes back to how do we understand the Bible? and understanding the context and understanding um, that there is a way that God uses it today to speak to us, but we have to understand how it was written and in what context it was written in and who it was written for. Um, And even that there's different pieces of the Bible, um, you know, there's prophecy, there's poetry, there's all kinds of, there's letters, there's all kinds of ways that we need to understand what we're reading. And I think um, that's where uh, a lot of mis- Information happens or misinterpretation. So I think about as a little kid. You all know. I don't know if you can tell, but I like being up on stage. I love leading worship. I love teaching and preaching. I feel really called to do that. I feel it's like a gift that you know God has put in me or a desire. And I felt that as a little kid. And I would you know line up like I can remember you know taking up an offering, lining up these little um, stuffed animals and like preaching to them and singing and those kinds of things. And, but that was just imaginary. For me, that was just like only like this little desire that I had in me because the way I understood and the way my denomination and family and history and all those things had read and understood scripture, that was not allowed. You know, I couldn't have that desire. I couldn't have that gift that wasn't, you know, for me because women shouldn't be teaching or leading or preaching. But if you, again, if you understand the context of where Paul is talking about women not leading and teaching um, and being silent in church, it's because of what was happening in the context of that church at that time and the way women were viewed in society at that time and um, again if we were to take uh that passage literally well there's a couple passages but the passage in particular i'm thinking of literally i'm like i also should be taking my gold earrings off this morning and if anybody has their hair braided, you know, you better take that out. Um, well, and you're so, not wearing
0: a head covering either. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you've also got that strikingly.
2: Truly, against you. I mean, it, we. So again, if we take Scripture literally, then we have to take literally everything literally, um, and that's not the way the Bible was intended to be read and understood and lived out. And so, um, thankfully, I've had new lenses of understanding scripture and read a lot and been around a lot of folks that have helped me see in new ways like no actually god could be calling you to teach or preach or lead Um, in fact i was just just came back very late last night from a a few days of a conference with a whole bunch of international college students from all over iowa nebraska kansas and um, we were gathering um, to celebrate the end of the school year and to eat and play together and also to study scripture together and um, so we studied the first four chapters of john and we it was so fun like just in my little small group there was a, uh, a man from uganda um, a man from indonesia um, a woman from china so you have all these different perspectives and even that is so important that we don't look at scripture from one lens or we understand scripture from in my mind you know a white western context but to listen to um, someone who comes from a totally different context and how they, um, how they read scripture and how they understand um, Jesus based on their own um, culture and their own um, background and understanding as well.
1: That's so good. And I think it also invites us towards humility when it comes to yes. scripture, right? Of understanding that we grew up with a very specific tradition. I had a Sunday school teacher that had a very specific perspective and here, if we're, if we're white Americans in the room in particular, um, we don't know it all. And so, if we God. approach <laughs> if we approach scripture with humility, then we we can have questions um, that don't completely unravel our yeah. faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: absolutely. Uh, the challenge I have for us is just simply this: we can make the Bible say just about anything we want to, mm-hmm. and that's the caution. Yeah. And if we're not careful, I mean. Uh, 250 years ago, this is the book that was used to justify keeping an entire skin color of people as chattel Mm -hmm. slavery. Now, you could make the argument that, you know, in the Bible times, they didn't have chattel slavery. You're correct, they didn't, it was different. There was all different kinds of rules and things around it, but for some reason, there was a point in time where people took this book and used it to justify. And I think what Liz said is so important that we have to be humble. You know, I said it last week. What do you think 100 years from now that those next generations will look back at us and go, ooh, they missed that one? I'm not saying we're wrong. I'm just saying we know what we know. We know what we've experienced of God, and we can approach this humbly. We can approach it humbly to love those who see things differently, to, you know, encourage one another because it all comes back To Jesus so um, how we handle the Bible will impact how we handle all the other issues though and we need to understand that Um, we can use this as a Billy Club or we can use it as an invitation to know and experience God and I hope as a part of Ashworth we do it as the latter
3: you know Jesus had a exchange with the uh, scribes and Pharisees and he said you guys, you strain at gnats and swallow camels.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And he said he's got to talk to him about the tithe in the in the temple. Mm-hmm. And he said, You count out your little seeds, your mint mm-hmm. and your anise and your cumin. Mm-hmm. And you count these seeds out so you make sure you get exactly one-tenth the tithe. But you ignore the weightier matters of the law, which is love and mercy. Mm-hmm. And Here's the deal with this ultra-literalism. That's what we end up doing. So Jesus leaves them there counting out their seeds, and he's going on and he's loving and blessing people, and he said, you've been taught this, but I'm telling you something (laughs) different than that. Uh, We need to really be cautious, and and it comes back to your humility. Yeah, (laughs) humility.
0: And something that Baptists traditionally or historically have not always done well which is to lean into the Holy Spirit of God. Um, I don't know where, I don't know why or how, but somewhere along the way, it seems like we got scared of that, of the Spirit. And Jesus was certainly not scared. In fact, he says, it's better that I go away because when I go the way, the Spirit will come and the Spirit will guide you into truth. And what's so fascinating, he says, he'll remind you of the things I've said. And Jesus also said, he will tell you the things that I could not tell you because it was too much for you to know. In that moment that's frightening Mm -hmm. because we want control and we want something we can wrap our minds around and so what is it that the Spirit might tell us and we I think we have to be humble and open Mm -hmm. to those things so let me jump to this next question here it says uh, Peter warned that unless we were sober and on the alert the devil would devour us Mm -hmm. Paul confronted the Galatians as being foolish and bewitched by being led into another gospel why shouldn't I be cautious, if not outright fearful, of this newfangled deconstruction talk? It sounds like something different than the good old time religion I was taught. Is it a different gospel? Steve, you wanna jump into that one?
3: <laughs> well, the, the whole premise of that question is the fear factor. Yeah. I'm afraid that I'm gonna be led astray. I'm afraid the devil's going to pick me off. And the scripture tells us, Paul said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So if we're starting from a basis of fear in our relationship with God, we already know we're not in sync with the spirit of God. God hasn't given us that. Well, where'd that come from? Well, it came from spiritual fake news (laughs) and misinformation, something we need to unpack and redo and rethink. And Paul went to great lengths to teach people at Romans 8, you know, he follows Romans 7 saying, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I'm a failure. I just mess up all the time. I want to do the right thing, but I don't. When I really try not to do the wrong thing, that's exactly what I do. Wretched man that I am. And then he goes into Romans chapter 8 and he says, there's therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, the spirit of life is, is the opposite of the spirit of fear. Mm-hmm. See, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. Okay. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. love and a sound mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So he says, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law I'm afraid of, afraid the devil's going to get me. No, we're not condemned in Christ. We're loved. And Paul goes on to say, he says, Yeah, the creation groans. We're all groaning, we're all trying to figure this out. It's a struggle sometimes, it's hard, we have questions. I I came across this prayer, I wrote it down. Lord, the world seems like a mess right now, and I'm not always sure where you are. But if I find it hard to nestle into your arms, may I at least engage with you to keep wrestling. I thought, yeah, that's where it is. We're groaning, we're struggling, we're trying to figure it out. But the Spirit is there, and He draws us in. And Paul says, And you know what? You don't even, when you don't even know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes for you, He prays for you, Jesus intercedes for you. How'd you like to listen into that prayer meeting up in yeah, the throne room? Yeah. The Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yeah. <laughs> huddling together. Going to pray for Steve Rogers. <laughs> He's groaning right now. He's wrestling with this. They intercede for us. And then he goes on to say, so if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing. Nothing can be against us. So let's identify if we're starting from fear or from life and spirit. So is the devil out to get us? The devil tries. He's the accuser of the brother. And he always makes us feel like we're failures but the spirit of God overcomes mm-hmm. all of that free yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> sermon.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's good. That's exactly right. Nothing else to add to that, you know, and when we question, have we moved to a different gospel? We, in our meetings on Monday, every week, I think we talked about that first in first Corinthians two, two does Paul say, he said, I came to you not with eloquent words or not with powerful demonstrations, but I came to you just mm-hmm. in the name of Jesus that's where it all comes down to. Yeah. Jesus. Jesus. That's the gospel. So last question here that we uh, got in was this. It said, how do you suggest we combat the guilt that comes with deconstruction? For example, I feel I've sometimes approached reading scripture as an obligation rather than a, than a true want, which makes me feel like I'm checking a box, but not deepening my faith. But when I try to read less scripture in a check box, checking the box way, I still feel a sense of guilt that I'm not doing enough. How do I combat this Am I, a, as I'm building my faith around Jesus and the truth of his love and sacrifice?
1: I love that question. I think it's one that I've wrestled with in my own journey. And I, I always hear Jesus saying to me, I care more about who you are than what you produce and what you do. Um, I... I think when we approach faith in that kind of way that we need to do this thing every single day, it's the tradition that we've been talking about. And that's so important and vital, but it's not the main point. And so to that to that person, I I love their heart in that they're wanting to get closer to God, but their guilt that they're feeling, that's not the spirit of life, right? Um, that That doesn't really come from God. I think Jesus brings freedom, Freedom to maybe engage in scripture in new ways. If reading that kind of way, maybe if reading a chapter a day, if that's not um, the best way for you to engage with God in a particular season, you can try other ways. You can read one verse and meditate on that for an entire day and get more out of it than you would if you were just checking off the box. And so freedom is the word that comes to mind for me there. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and and one message I talked about the importance of contemplation and community. And I think that's where that other side comes into this. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we need the voices of others speaking into us. This is not an isolated faith. We rely on one another so much. But you said something that I think is so critical for us. We all approach our faith from our experience, from the lenses we have. And part of that is the American culture of achievement and production. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we bring that in, Mm -hmm. and it's very hard to sit in the presence of God and just to be still and know because we go, but I'm not doing anything. And God says, exactly. Mm -hmm. He is not looking for us to produce, and that really pushes back Mm -hmm. against our culture Mm -hmm. of telling us that we have no value unless we produce, unless we achieve and so that's where we see the tension of the kingdom of God and the culture we live in. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard. And so it is guilt-inducing mm-hmm. if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. So.
2: And I think that makes me think, I mean, that person's question makes me think even of some of the guilt that comes in, in doing deconstruction where you're like, I think for me, even as a person who's... Um, I make jokes about, like, having gone pro in my faith, you know, I'm, like, professional Christian, I get paid to do this, no, but I love Jesus, and I love Jesus, and so it was really disorienting to me when I was starting to kind of experience some deconstruction in my own mind and heart, and I remember, you know, there have been times where I thought, like, is this okay, can I doubt, can I wrestle, can I have these questions, you know, and feeling guilt, like I shouldn't be leading people, or um, can I change my mind, you know, and it, honestly, what helped me so much was community and not doing it alone. And I needed—I almost needed permission, like, it's okay, me. This is part of the process of faith, is wrestling and learning. And a lot of it even is just like hearing Brent on a regular basis talk about things. And I'm like, oh, he's changing his mind on something. Like, you can do that? I didn't know that, you know? And like, yes, we can grow and evolve in our understanding of things because we know more. And so we think differently or we understand scripture more or or we listen to other perspectives and we begin to, you know, consider why that is. And our faith actually becomes bigger and broader. And, and we find, you know, there's, we've talked about this, was it last week, about like mystery. We're just more okay with mystery maybe. Mm-hmm. And so I think I have been learning there isn't guilt in um, in going through deconstruction. So if that's you or the people in your life, I think um, even just, per, it's so important to give permission or space for people to say, you um, yeah, I have a lot of questions or I'm wrestling with something or I don't know what I really believe about this. Maybe I don't hang my hat on this issue the way I used to. Yeah. And is that okay? Yes, it's okay. And um, it's actually like, it's, a it's our faith is dynamic. It changes and it's a relationship, right? Yeah. Just like my uh, husband and my kids and my friends, like our relationships grow and change yeah. and they deepen and they, they get more tense also, you know, <laughs> over time but that's good, that's like a dynamic uh, relationship.
0: And so just to to bring this to a close, you know, one of the things as we've talked over the last several weeks as we've put these things together is, it it reminded me of a story and even my own deconstruction process. There are moments when yes, even a pastor can go, is this all real? Hmm. Uh, Does this even matter? Does it make a difference and all this? Yep, those questions have come into my mind before, but I'm always taken back to an interesting story where you know Jesus has the crowds around him and they're following him he's fed them he's done miracles and they're just you know they're with him but then he begins to make these really challenging statements things like if you want to be my disciple you must crucify yourself daily take up your cross and follow me oh well that's a little tougher just do the magic show Jesus I don't want that then there's this one moment where he says to the crowds he says if you want to be my disciple Eat my flesh and drink my blood. It says that the crowd scattered to the point where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, I love this. He says, will you leave me too? And I feel like in my own deconstruction journey, that's the question Jesus has asked me before. Will you leave me too? And I love the way Peter responds. Peter, you know, speak first, think later. Mm -hmm. You know, I can relate to that. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: Peter, you know, looks at Jesus, will you leave me too? And Peter says, where would we go? What would Mm -hmm. we do? You are the one Mm -hmm. who has the words of life. And honestly, that's when the questions come, when the doubts come over me, when I struggle with my own, when I see evil in the world, when I hear about yet another mass shooting, when I hear about all these Mm -hmm. things and I just want to scream, God, where are you? I know he's here. I know he's working, and I know I look and I go, I've looked. Where would I go? What would I do? Jesus, you are the one that has the words of life. Let's pray.